Hey, Darren, I'm watching the best show on television. You want to know what it is? What is it? I think I know, but what is it? Inglorious Trexperts. <laughs> and you're thinking to yourself, that's wait a second, that's not say. a TV show. It's but not it a t- is. But it is. It, it is. is. It's a TV show because you can watch us on the Electric Now app. It's an app for streaming video podcasts as well as movies, television, and more. You can see us on demand on Electric Now. I demand it. I demand because I demand it. <laughs> Commodore Stone can watch us on the Electric Now app. And how do you get the Electric Now app? Because apparently people are having trouble understanding the concept. Just go to your app store from whatever device you're using or all of the devices you're using. And you download it to your phone, your iPad, your Roku, your whatever, whatever you, whatever you, whatever you have that streams other than a Viewmaster. You download it and, and then you watch it 100% free. There's no charge, yeah. there's no Patreon, there's no Electronic Frontier. All there is is a free app. So download the Electric Now app from your favorite app store and watch us on Electric Now. You must learn to listen to the Rebel and the Rogue or you will not be allowed to come with me to Alderaan. If you're a fan of the 430 movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by myself, Josh Miller. And Steven Scarlatta. Where we explore some of the greatest movies never made, like E.T. 2. Johnny Quest. Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. And Halloween 3D. New episodes available every other Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And if you're a fan of the only gentleman secret agent with a license to kill and thrill, you should pick up my new James Bond oral history, Nobody Does It Better. Available now in hardcover, audio, and digital wherever books are sold. Do you expect me to read? No, I expect you to buy it. This is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. Trexperts. <laughs> Welcome to Inglorious Trexperts. I'm going to talk with a radio voice the rest of the episode. And you can <laughs> all see now. No, I'm not. Oh, my because, goodness. Because I want them to hear our next guest, Darren. Because if I talk okay, like good. that, nobody's going to stay. He's going to say, I'm getting I want to stay, stay, stay. stay. <laughs> Coming in play, Trelane. Come on, come on. <laughs> playing with the inferior races. Uh, so, great guest today. Um, uh, ben Robinson uh, was a journalist covering Trek for many years for the uh, Star Trek uh, Fact Files in the UK. Crossed paths with him many times because, of course, we were covering Star Trek at the, uh, at the same time back in the uh, 90s. But he's since gone on to become the head of Hero Collector, where they put out a very popular line of um, uh, ship replicas. He's sort of become the uh, the grand toy man of Star Trek. He's the toy master. Yeah. Sounds like a, a villain, <laughs> like a gold key villain, you know? Right. Ah, the old toy. Or, or, or Saul Rubinek in The Most Toys. Yes, right. For that episode of Next Gen? I, indeed I do. Ah, so uh, he is. He is the toy master. And they're, they're doing these great ships. And, you know, as he'll talk about, some people complain they're not in scale. He'll talk about why. But I, I, I enjoy them. I actually... Um, the small, the, the smaller ones are, um, uh, they're, you know, 
preserved in perfect detail. But um, I really like the bigger versions. Um, they, they look great on a shelf. I have a bunch of them. I really enjoy them. Uh, you know, obviously, you would know which ships I have, um, not surprisingly. And then... Um, I love uh, it that you have all these ships, and I work for them occasionally, and I don't have any of them. Well, so. I bought some of them. I didn't get them all comped. I, <laughs> I, mean, I bought the ones I have, too, I, Mr. Man. I, I, I did get, I, you know, look, I did get a bunch, you know, complimentary, I have to admit. But I you did, know. you know, I bought a bunch because I really like them. And then same with the As Galactica. I. I just As bought Colonial I. One from Galactica. You know, wow. um, is there, it, a, is there a, a, a tiny Merrick McDonald in it? I don't know. Let's find out. <laughs> <laughs> if I were home, I would check. Stands um, with a fist. <laughs> but I really, um, and I love that they did the originals. I mean, the Viper and the Cylon Raider and, you know, the original Galactica. I mean, because obviously those those are such beautiful, uh, uh, those are such beautiful ships. Um, but, you know, we could do like a little uh, Starship Smackdown with the, the ships and just, you know, hold them in front of the. Sure, Mark. Knock my, yourself out. Yeah, I'm not doing that again. <laughs> <laughs> um but, uh, but yeah, they, they do a great job, and we thought it was high time that we talked to Ben about um, uh, the Eagle Moss, and then they're now doing a popular line of books, uh, including an upcoming book about the uh, anniversary of Star Trek Voyager. And, um, he's, and a he's book about be, the Aston Martin DB5, which uh, is going to be Which I fun. actually will read, and, yeah. <laughs> which is super cool. And uh, they're doing a bunch of other stuff. So, But we'll let Ben talk about it instead of us, so... We want to welcome uh, Ben Robinson to the show. Come on, uh, beam on down, Ben. And we're delighted to have joining us today the head of Hero Collector. That's a that's a CEO kind of title, head of. I don't know, but we, we whatever for whatever reasons, you know, we're going to call him the head of Hero Collector. Uh, you know him as the guy who's bringing you all these these great little ships uh, uh, through the Eagle Moss uh, line. They have the license to do. They've been doing Star Trek now for years. Um, they just uh, launched the Orville. They've been doing some amazing stuff with Battlestar Galactica and uh, have recently expanded to, into books. They have a great new book uh, about the Aston, the iconic Aston Martin DB5, which is the greatest thing next to owning the actual car uh, itself. And uh, I'm thrilled to welcome to the podcast Ben Robinson. Ben, hey. Hey, good to see hey, you. Hey there, Ben. <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah, international I, podcast, as we were just saying. It, it's so funny because it's true. We've never, um, you know, with the pandemic, it was the first time we interviewed people who weren't in the studio. Because you had to come to the studio. Like Rafe Needleman flew down from San Francisco just to be on the show, which we really appreciated. Um, and, and same with Bill George, you know, and, and then the pandemic hit and it opened the door to all kinds of new guests because suddenly we could interview people outside of the studio. But you are the first guest uh, across the pond, although ironically, I'm also in Europe. But, uh, <laughs> you know, so Darren is the one across the pond, as far as I'm, I'm concerned. I'm still in the pond. <laughs> You're in the pond, the pond far. So uh, anyway, um, Ben, it's, it's been great because, you know, obviously you are someone like us who uh, lives and breathes and eats Star Trek and is a true Trekspert. Um, and of course, we had a similar path uh, back during the 90s when Star Trek was sort of at its apex, I guess you could say it was kind of at its apex, where uh, you know I was doing all that stuff for Cinefantastic, 
And of course, you were sort of pioneering all this great journalistic coverage with the Fact Files. How did you get involved in Star Trek as a professional? You know, uh, you know, once you were obviously you were a fan, but then you sort of it became something that you actually made a living on. Can, can you tell us about that transition and sort of what your connection to Star Trek originally was? Yeah, I was I was working for Dawning Kindersley um, on Believe It or Not interactive CD-ROMs. That's how long ago it was. Um, and there was an advert in the Guardian, which is the big kind of media newspaper here, saying, "Do you work in publishing and know a lot about Star Trek?" And I thought, "Yeah, that kind of sounds like me." So um, I applied for the job, and that turned out to be be the Star Trek Fact Files, which. Um, everyone told me, oh, you know, it'll last a couple of years and then that'll be it. And I was like, okay, that's great. That's fine. I get to work on Star Trek for a couple of years. Um, and that was, oh my God, 22 years ago? Uh, no, 23 years ago. So, yeah, <laughs> I've been doing it pretty much ever since. You know, it, it's interesting because I think you were a lot like me and, 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 and now Darren and I, we really love when we can call attention to someone that's not, you know, well-known. You know, like we all know who Shatner is and Leonard Nimoy, but, you know, for us, it's, it's really been putting the spotlight on, like we did Andre Richardson recently. It was Gene Kuhn's uh, assistant back in the day. And obviously Gene Kuhn, it's been a personal mission of ours to sort of shine a light on him. One of the things you did that I think was pretty spectacular was um, before he was a household name, or at least in Star Trek circles, was really do a deep dive into Matt Jeffries. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, how that came about and, you know, why Matt was so significant and, and sort of what came out of that, you know, whole conversation. Because I think you were really one of the first people to really, um, you know, uh, uh, shine the spotlight on him uh, in, a, in, a, in a meaningful way. Yeah, well, I've always been really interested in the behind the scenes people. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, but also it was practical. So, you know, you're doing, when we started doing the US magazine, it's like you could get one, maybe two actor interviews a month. But, you know, there were loads of people who I thought had a really important influence on Star Trek, whether they were writers or designers or, you know, VFX guys or anything like that. And I think for a lot of people, that's what, what they really watch for. Um, and Matt had not really, I don't know, never really been covered in depth. I mean, people knew who he was, obviously. Um, and we used to have a little office on the Paramount lot in the, I mean, when I say office, that makes it sound really grand. We were in the paint loft. So they used to have like this area where they'd paint these massive backdrops. And we had like a little room that nobody else wanted because it was just for like people to store cans of paint. And we were there and Penny, who used to work for us, got quite friendly with Matt. I think probably through uh, Mike, Mike Akuda or Doug, maybe. Um, and Matt and Marianne were kind of retired and getting on a bit. Um, and Penny kind of slightly adopted them, I think. Um, so I went out, I remember it was just after 9-11, um, and went over to Matt's house and just talked through everything, you know, just like from the beginning, spent the whole day just going through stuff. Um, and it was great. I mean, it was a real, real pleasure. And he was like completely uh, down to earth and matter of fact about the whole thing. Told me he really was much happier working on Little House on the Prairie. Um, 
than anything else. I got um, to I got to meet him a couple times, and the thing that I found most interesting was that he was absolutely astonished and dumbfounded as to why anyone would even be interested in what he did before. Yeah. Uh, and he was so down-to-earth and so matter-of-fact about everything that he, he had no concept of his um, importance in the history of, uh, of Star Trek. Well, I had a kind of weird um, parallel with that because my grandfather um, was the production designer at Hammer. And he uh, apparently once took all this stuff he'd done for Hammer down to the bottom of the garden and set fire to it in a bonfire because he couldn't <laughs> see why anybody would want oh, it. Um, you know, um, so that kind of, like, people who worked on this stuff, it was a job, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. they, you know, they worked really hard and they did a really good job, but it was a job. Um, and as I said, like, Matt was just, like, really happy. He was saying we were talking about uh, Phase 2, I get very anal about that. It wasn't called Phase Two at the time, right. but anyway. Um, and he was saying, "Well, I was working on a house in the prairie, which I loved. That was it. I was like, you know, I like farms and backwoods yeah. and that kind of stuff." Um, but he was, yeah, he was just a really nice guy. He was very. Um, <laughs> he had a big downer on people being so scared after nine eleven, because obviously, mm -hmm. you know, he, he'd flown bombers in World War Two, so right. he had a very different attitude to stuff. <laughs> What, uh, what, you know, and it's funny because I know for me when I was, I mean, there were sort of three big people covering Star Trek at the time. There was like Ian Spelling, who was like the official guy, um, who was like doing syndicated. And there was you and there was me doing the Cinefantastic yeah. stuff. And, you know, I was sort of liberated because I didn't really care what anybody thought. So, you know, I could... <laughs> we weren't doing a licensed magazine. And, you know, uh, at the end of the day, it's like, wasn't afraid about burning bridges. I was, I guess, the the the, the youth, the the the, uh, the silliness of youth. But um, uh, you, you sort of straddled both worlds because I think you were doing some really great work and got some great stuff. You know, whereas Ian, I think, I, I wouldn't call them puff pieces, but you know, to a large yeah. extent, that's what they were. Um, and 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 what were some of the things that you remember about that time that was most exciting to you? I mean, I'm sort of going through that again with the podcast where we're talking to these people and it's just like this, you know, remarkable, you know, stuff that people are saying for the first time, whether it's a Bob Salen or, um, you know, some of these, you know, it's not the usual suspects because we all know talking to actors is the least interesting part of the job, you know, as an entertainment journalist, because they're just repeating the same thing over and over. And if you're a good journalist, maybe you can get them to say a few things they haven't said before, but um, it's not exciting. Uh, you're not I can tell you, I'll tell you a story which, which George Takei will not forgive me for. <laughs> so I used to prepare really hard for the actor interviews that we did do. Um, and you'd work really hard to come up with something like you say that they hadn't been asked before. And I did this with George. And he took this long pause and he said, you know, Ben, I don't actually remember being in Star Trek. I remember telling the stories. <laughs> and you realize that's kind of, you know, for a lot of actors, they just been telling the stories for 30, 40 years. Right. Um, and actually, what actually happened? Now, most of them don't remember. I mean, Leonard was the big exception to that. Leonard would be like, yes, the sun was shining through the window on the left side of the room. And I remember this exactly happened. Everyone's, I have no idea. It's yeah. so funny you say that, 
because I really, I've said this before, the history of Star Trek's like Rashomon. Everybody has a different opinion about it. And that the actors who were shooting the show for three years, <coughs> and in Walter's case, two years, you know, but they've been telling the stories of the convention circuit for 30, 40 years. You know, they're, they're, they're basically repeating, you know, it's, it's, it's Liberty Valance. They're printing the legend. And, and, and the real stories have sort of faded into the you know the, the the sands of time much like the guardian of forever and uh it, it's interesting because a lot of this stuff is all bullshit you know pretty much that they're 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 saying um and, and that is the challenge of of interviewing the cast and then of course you know when you and i were covering next generation we had the advantage of it being contemporaneous but at the same time it was tough to get anybody to see, say anything substantive because of course they were shooting the show at the time. And yeah, and did, I mean, yeah. what I loved was that because we talked to people who weren't, I mean, the actors are, the, what people got to remember is the actors are like at the end of the pipe. They basically get the script like um, two days after they should have got it, five minutes before they had to go out and film it. And some of them are very, you know, involved. We just, I just did a load of interviews for this Voyager book we've got coming out and you realize some of them were very engaged and would call the, call the writers and try and change stuff. But on the whole, they're at the end of the process. So if you really want to know what happened and how things change, you want to be talking to different people. So, you know, you talk to the writers and they'll say, oh, well, actually this story started off as something completely different. This started off as that or that. And then, you know, this, went, this happened or that happened. Um, well, the same with the designers. They're like, oh, well, it, it, we were going to do a whole shit for this and then the budget got cut, but then we had it and we used it six weeks later in a different episode. Or, you know, it's that kind of um, archaeology, that kind of finding out what happened. And I think because everyone gets so focused on the actors, people just haven't really done it before. Yeah, yeah. Are you surprised by the uh, critical revisionism regarding Voyager? Because I'm not all that young that I remember when people loathed Voyager, you know, it was, it was, it was the copy of the copy of the copy and no one, you know, was the butt of every joke. Now, apparently, I guess it's the most popular show on Netflix. You know, there are all these rumors about some kind of Janeway show for CBS All Access. And like people always are now putting it as one of their favorite Star Trek shows. I don't know when this happened. I, I must've been sleeping that day. I, I'll tell you what it is. is so I, I found Brian, Brian Fuller. We both know Brian pretty well. Um, for this book, he was like the first person interviewed. I was like, oh, I've been watching Voyager, Kevin. It's much better than I remember. <laughs> I, it's way better. And Brian's going, I know, I've been watching it. It's on like 11 o'clock at night. And I've been watching it. I've been going, my God, this is good. Um, and I think at the time, you know, you were there just thinking, oh, it, it's not moving forward enough, I guess. Mm. Is it, it's not next gen. I was talking to Brandon about it. And he was saying, you know, everyone gave Voyager a really hard time for not being different enough to Next Gen. And he said, but Next Gen was really successful and really popular. Why would you want to be different? Right. Um, I mean, I, I think there are reasons why you want to be different. But yeah, you can see the way, the way they were thinking. And, and they I had already it, done it something. They had already done something different than Next Gen. Yeah. Space Nine. And that wasn't met with, you know, heraldry either. So. No. I think that the problem is that every time you do something new, there's going to be naysayers at the beginning. Absolutely. But equally with Voyager, when you don't do something new, right. there are naysayers. Right. <laughs> you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Whatever you do, 
I mean, it's interesting that doing the book, though, because I was talking to um, Jerry Taylor about it as well. And oh, you realize Jerry was willing to talk to you, which is great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I talked to, uh, yeah, lovely chat with Jerry. She's, um, she's wonderful, actually. She's really sweet. How's she doing she's these days? I, I haven't seen her in 25 years. Yeah, she's, no. she's great. She's, um, she kind of says, I'm a terrible interview because I don't remember anything or, <laughs> you know, I mean, which is not, I mean, there's some truth to it. Um, but, uh, you know, what she was saying is that when they started doing Voyager, there was something like 300 and odd episodes of um, Star Trek. And by the time they got to the end, there were over 600. So, you know, you realize how, just how hard it was to come up with the same kind of story. You know, it's like, you just like, it, I mean, you have to, you look at what they're doing on the Orville, they're still doing episodes now, and you look at that and go, well, that's a great episode of Star Trek. So the idea that ideas are kind of played out is wrong. There are two things that drive me crazy that they, they're, they're the go-to excuses. One you just mentioned, which is, oh, there's 800 episodes. How, how could we expect them to do anything new? I, you know, I know that the Shakespeare said there were seven plots, but you know what? You could still do something fresh. Uh, the second is franchise fatigue which was their excuse for why nothing worked in the end, which I also thought was complete and utter nonsense. Uh, I think people were, were, were bored with what they were doing. I don't think that they were bored with the franchise. Uh, I think there was a, a kind of conservatism that came in. Um, and I still work for licensed products, so I can't talk about it in too much detail. Uh, <laughs> but I think there was a, a kind of a desire to still be next gen in 1994 yes. or whatever. And, and that by the time you get to 1999 or 2000, it's this extraordinary period of TV changing as well. You know, that, that you, when you start, you know, you're in a kind of, I don't know, Miami Vice kind of mold. And in fact, a load of people who worked in TNG season one had worked on Miami Vice, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, or Mike, Mike Pillar had come from Simon Simon. Yeah, you know, that kind of TV is a completely different concept of what TV is to what we have now. Right. By the time you get to, you know, okay, one always holds up the Sopranos, but I think it kind of happened before. But by the time you get to like Mad Men or Game of Thrones or something like that, it's just so much more ambitious and so much more, you know, um, thought through, planned, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, the other thing Jerry was saying, I was talking to her about the characters and she was saying like, Oh, well, you know, it, we just thought they had potential. We didn't think it through. Right. right. We yeah. just thought, yeah, that could be interesting. Let's give it a go and see what happened. Well, because it all had to be done so quickly. That's mm. the thing. 26 episodes a year as well. They all, yeah. that's a valid complaint. I mean. Yeah, that, that is a valid complaint. I don't know how they did it. And, you know, I mean, they, they, and then they had to go back and do it again, you know, after, you know, six weeks off. I mean, it was... Uh, insane and 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 the production more never never let up um so yes uh, it, it is unbelievable that they were doing 26 hours of television and and you know in a lot of cases doing you know at least half or three quarters of the season were pretty good you know particularly yeah. when you look at the better seasons of next generation it's an extraordinary batting average um but uh but you know, it's funny i kind of went through the same thing you're going through with voyager with enterprise which is a show I never liked and never watched much of. And recently during the lockdown, for whatever reason, I found myself watching Enterprise. And, um, 
you know, I would never hold it up as an example of, of great Star Trek television, but I liked it a hell of a lot more than back in the day, uh, uh, you know, now with distance and, and actually, you know, appreciated it a lot more and, and found it eminently watchable. So how, okay, let's go, let's go to the place, season three of the original series. Now, yes. I, okay, a lot of it I actually find almost unwatchable. Like I, I have watched every episode of Star Trek loads and loads of times. Doesn't matter how many times I watch the lights of Zeta, I still cannot remember what happens. I, no. I, I <laughs> just because there isn't a ship to be made and made money off of from lights of Zeta is no reason to it dislike is. it. I, I, there are no ships in Sticking Edge forever. I mean, there are no ships in. Um, um, I, I, I can't think my absolute favorite episode, the, the core, <laughs> the first core episode, um, Errand of Mercy. No uh -huh. ships for that. It's not about the ships for me. That's just a, like a bonus. That's where I make a living. You know, I'm, not gonna I'm not going to defend the lights of Zatar, but I am going to say this. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. It, 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 it gave canon memory alpha, which obviously yeah, became important. It's a whole Wikipedia entry yeah. now. I look, I, I, first of all, I think. When you set out to do a Scotty love story, you're in trouble already because, you know, none of the Scotty love stories ever really worked. I mean, it, 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 who moans for Adonis works in spite of the Scotty love story. The, right. you know, uh, Wolf in the Fold is not a good episode unless you're a fan of Piglet. And uh, then, of course, Life in Zaytar is, is terrible. But I will say this. It always scared the shit out of me when I was a kid. <laughs> When they started, yeah. she starts to bear remains, start talking like this. And it's just creepy and weird. And, uh, you know, it had that weird lighting effect. And it's still um, an interesting sci fi premise. So, yeah, buried so. in there somewhere. Buried yeah, in there exactly. somewhere. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, okay, so let's look at third season. Since this is actually going to be an episode of the third season of the Glorious Transports, which right. is when we're going to go off the, you know, we're going to jump the shark. So let's let's do it now. Um, Did you ever talk to Fred Freiberger? Did you talk to Fred? No, Ed Grace was the one who talked to him. I never talked to Fred Freiberger. Um, and I wish he's I had. He's a lovely man. He's a lovely man, but he just kind of, you talk about someone not getting what the fuss was. Right. He was like, yeah. I mean, you know, they told me to make it more like Lost in Space. So I did. <laughs> I mean, that was one of the weirdest interviews I ever did because I just wanted to say to him all the time, why did you make it terrible? Why did you say something that had been so good and make it bad? Um, but he was a nice guy. I mean, again, just doing a job, I guess. He gave Ed Gross one of my favorite quotes of all time. He said, you know, in World War II, he was in a prisoner of war camp for a couple of years uh, after he was shot down. And that did not compare to his experience of dealing with Star Trek fans after, <laughs> in the wake of uh, his involvement with Star Trek. He, he said he preferred being in a prisoner war camp than dealing oh with goodness. the animosity he got from uh, what he did to Star Trek. So, wow. um, uh, you know, very, very interesting. Um, and I, by all, by all, everything I've always heard about him was he's a lovely man, but he did the same thing in Space 1999. Well, I was going to say, he's got four. He went there around were, like the man destroyed There was an arrogance and an ego, I think, to him, where he felt that he knew better. And so, you know, Space 1999, he completely changed it, right? Uh, which, look, Space 1999, I'm going to hold that up as an example of great television. But, you know, uh, you, you need to acknowledge the fact that, you know, obviously it had an audience. So why antagonize the audience that it does have by completely changing the show? 
I mean, with Star Trek, I think it was the same thing. I think he felt he knew better. Star Trek's not a comedy, you know, so everything's going to be really dour and serious. And, uh, uh, you know, and he was going to do all these stories, which he thought, but it, it, it's just, um, but it's not that the third season's without its merits. I mean, Enterprise Incident is a, is a solid episode. I mean, regardless of whatever season it was in, um, you know, Cloudminders has an interesting idea behind it, even though it's not a great episode. Uh, Margaret you know. Almond was my worst ever interview. Oh, really? That was my, the hardest interview I ever did because she had Alzheimer's. Oh, uh, it was terrible. I was saying to her, so this is saying, oh, did I write that episode? I think I wrote another episode. Like, no, Margaret, you didn't. I, that was just the most painful and horrible experience. Yeah, she probably shouldn't have been doing interviews at that point. The, yeah, um, well, that's I bad. mean, this is the thing is that you realize how many people there are. I mean, the extraordinary thing is how many people people still haven't talked to. So, um, because we did um, the Folian chip, I ended up talking to Judy Burns about mm -hmm. Folian Well. And she had loads to say and original script drafts and things that she could send me. Um, and you're like, my God, I had no idea that this was still out there. Why have I not seen this before? You know, um, I mean, uh, there are very few people left, I guess, from original series now who can tell you those stories. But there I are mean, still there. there. There are still, I mean, that's why, you know, with the podcast, it's like we keep finding interesting people to talk to, like Barry Mason, you know, worked on the visual effects for the original show. <clears throat> but I do feel you just mentioned Tholian Webb, which is another solid episode of uh, yeah. the third season with some really innovative, inventive visual effects. Um, you know, those original visual effects for that. Um, you know, the whole concept of the, the web, the energy web, is really phenomenal. And, um, uh, you know, other third season episodes, yeah, I mean, of course, The Children Shall Lead is an abomination. Um, it is. Also, <laughs> very hard to watch. Not an episode you want to watch six or seven times. No, but I mean, I still find stuff in these episodes like, you know, uh, that which survives is just creepy, you know, uh, even though it's not a particularly good episode. But it's it's weird and, and it captures the mystery of space. And, you know, the worst things in looking at Lee Merriweather for an hour in that outfit uh, as Lucera, you know, and then um, uh, what there was. Um, well, uh, no, there's good stuff. I mean, go on, Dad. No, one of my favorites is Requiem for Methuselah, which is yeah. a bit of a goofy episode, but it has some lovely moments in it. And I think the idea of Flint as a character who has lived throughout the ages is amazing and a great sci-fi idea. And uh, I just love that one. I mean, you yeah, could, no, I, I think there are great things in there. But I guess what I was trying to say is that, you know, even the things that we hold up as like the... the the original series being kind of inviolate and as if it was always perfect. I mean, the thing that's amazing is the first and second series, the batting average is so high, it's yeah. unbelievable. But, you know, all our yesterdays, I think, the idea of everyone you know, hiding in the past from their own planet, I think, that, you know, there's lots of really clever stuff there. It just doesn't always quite play out. I mean, the one I, think I love about Reckoning Through Thesis is it's proof that Kirk, it's another Kirk, Kirk kisses the android and fries its brain episode. <laughs> it, it has those elements, sure, but I will I will die on the hilltop of that. Even the worst original series episodes are better and more entertaining than the worst of any of the other series. Uh, than the worst, okay, that's than the fair. worst. Yeah, like, I, I agree with that because I would watch you know that which survives or lights his HR over masks or uh, you know night terrors any day. 
or Spock's brain, certainly, uh, which is wildly entertaining, as awful it is. Because I think what you guys have, have nailed is that the third season, the problem wasn't the ideas, it was the execution. All these yeah. episodes had interesting nuggets, you know, um, whether you have the upstairs, downstairs aspect of the cloud minders where you're dealing with that sort of metropolis of, you know, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. And, you know, you're dealing with in, um, uh, you know, that which survives has an interesting concept that it's art. You know, um, everything but probably turned about intruder is sort of a reasonable concept um, that, that maybe was just not executed well. Um, even, um, you know, uh, the, um, the Dolmen of Elas, Alana Troyes. Right. That's, a, you know, an interesting concept, you know, doing the taming of the shrew uh, as a Star Trek episode, but they're not executed well. And that's, right. you know, Freiburger's biggest failing. But that's not unlike um, the first season of Star Trek uh, The Next Generation, where there were some interesting ideas that are just really badly executed. Right. Yeah, and, and season two as well of TNG, I think. Yeah. I think it, it's only when Michael got to TNG because it's quite interesting because on Voyager book, we ended up talking about Michael quite a lot. Um, and, you know, Michael, I mean, I adored Michael. I thought he was like the, the best thing that happened to modern Star Trek by a long way. I, so did I. I, I did, and I think, you know, both personally and professionally, I adored Michael as well. And he was such a great mentor to so many of those people, um, as they all attest now. At the time, they said he, he was a little tough on them, but they all, to a fault, like, are so grateful to him for giving them their start. You know, Brandon, Ron, Renee, uh, you know, obviously the list goes on. Yeah, and on and on. Yeah. But yeah. Michael, you know, but you realize that when you're looking at those early days of Voyager, that Michael had kind of, I guess he'd kind of played out his version of Star Trek. Mm -hmm. You know, that he's there like going, yeah, I really think the Kazon is a really great idea and we need to do more Kazon stories. Yeah. Um, and everyone else is like, no, we really don't, Michael. We really, really don't need to do more case on story. <laughs> um, and, you know, he, but he had this kind of, I was talking again to Jerry about this, like, he had this idea of Picard as like this kind of Old Testament prophet who had to kind of wrestle with moral dilemmas every week. And that version of Star Trek, I think, did kind of play out. So when they're talking about like franchise fatigue or storyline fatigue, Yes, if you don't change the formula. Right. But right. the thing about the original series is it can do anything. Mm -hmm. You can do any, it's meant to be like the Outer Limits with a recurring cast. So right. you can just do any story you want. Um, and I think they lost sight of that a bit in, in the kind of the TNG era, I guess we would call it. Yes. Well, they were risk averse. You said it before. And it's a shame because every time they shook up the cast, whether it was Elizabeth Dennehy and Best of Both Worlds or Jellico and Jane of Command, the show really came to life, or Lower Decks, and I'm not talking about the animated series, mm -hmm. I'm talking about the next generation. Uh, it, it, every time they shook it up and broke format or family, the show was like reinvented. It was like, great. <laughs> You're like, where, you know, where's this show been? You know, but then inevitably it would get dragged back to sort of formula. And there'd be that AB story with like the personal story and then the space anomaly and the techno babble. And you're like, oh God, how many of these do we have to suffer through before we get to another great episode? Yeah, but it's, it's also it's interesting. I was talking, I've got a friend who's rewatching Next Gen from the beginning, and he's got to season six, I think. Mm -hmm. um, oh, no, season five. He's late season five. And I like you saying, oh, no, you've got a good bit. Oh, you've got to mm, just have to plow through the next six episodes. You know, just, just keep going. And then it gets really good again. And there's that kind of randomness, I think, particularly to TNG, 
where you know you tune in and it could be terrible or it could be brilliant mm -hmm. you know yeah. in the same season it could be Dalmok or rascals <laughs> you know it's like and you didn't know which you were going to get yeah. yeah no and it's true and, and and that's why you really you know you had to be a true fan to stick with it. They say, oh, you know, what's a true fan? It's somebody who's stuck with it and watched it every week. Especially like a sports fan. It's like your team's losing, but you still go. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's just like in sports. You know, you're losing, you know, you, you, season after season. You're not even close to the championships, but you keep watching every game and you're rooting for them. And that was what it was like to be a structure fan, you know, in the 90s. It's like you were rooting for it. You were rooting for it, but they kept losing games. And you're like, one day they're going to go on a, on a rally, and, and they would, and then they'd start losing games over and over again. That's the best analogy I've ever heard for uh, uh, for Star Trek. Um, you know, I bet, but you wanted to stick with it. You know, it's like, and again, it's the characters, because clearly that's what made the original Star Trek work. It's why we would argue that even the worst of episodes are watchable, because you love the Kirk, Spock, and McCoy so much. Um, and with Next Generation, it was still the characters got you through these bad episodes because you really enjoyed Picard and Worf and Data and, you know, occasionally some of the others. And Riker, of that's, course. And that's extraordinary because they, you know, they're not, yeah, they're not, you hear the hands ever tell you the story about Gene, this is going to upset some people, Gene, Gene, um, or the writers complaining about not, um, not really knowing who the characters were in the first season of TNG. So Gene calls a meeting and he says, okay, I'm going to, you know, set it through. This is just before he goes off to rehab. And he says, and he goes, uh, Picard is the captain. He is commanding. Geordi is the pilot. He, he, and they're like, this is it? This is all you're going to tell us? And, it was, and that was it. That was it. It was like, it's like Picard is Patrick Stewart. That's what matters. And Patrick will bring whatever it is he chooses to bring. You know, it's not on the page, at least not until the actors have, no, have absolutely. a big jump. And I just think that you can do that now. The, the, the best story about Gene, of course, was the real reason he was fighting having a Klingon bridge when everybody was pitching it, like David and DC and, you know, Justman, they all wanted the Klingon. He didn't want the Klingon because he didn't want to have to pay uh, the ex-wife in the divorce settlement uh, money on Next Gen because she got money on the original and, and he didn't want Next Gen to be too connected to the original series because he felt he would end up having to pay alimony on it. So, I mean, that's why he was fighting Warf. But, uh, and, uh, you know, ultimately he gave in, I think. Uh, and I don't know if he ended up... Because once you start having McCoy in the pilot, it's like, yeah, I think it's tied into the original. I think there's no way around it. Yeah, no way around it. I think once I, you start calling something Star Trek, it kind of buries your lead there a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I think you're right, Gene. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's so interesting. But you're right. I mean, the characters are very thin, um, and it's really what the actors brought to them. You know, certainly Patrick, you know, brought um, the Shakespearean gravitas to the, to, to the role of, of Picard. But, you know, as, as well documented by everybody, he was expecting to do 26 and be done and go back to England at the end of the right. season. Oh, Nobody 13. Had... <laughs> <laughs> he was, I was very surprised he was still there. He was yeah. living out of his suitcase. Yeah. He finally had to realize he, he had to unpack his suitcase. Yeah. And then, you know, 
you know, uh, John obviously is just a very naturally charismatic guy. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, Brent you know, just gave a really strong performance. And that character almost always works unless it's Neelix. You know, it's like, the, the, you know, the, the, the one searching to understand humanity, um, you know, whether it's Spock or, 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 you know, any of these characters that have come subsequently, you know, always work. And Data, you know, worked arguably among, you know, among the best of them. I tell you that, so again, doing the Voyage book, a really interesting thing came out. It's one of the reasons Seven works so well it, and is so like Spock is because she basically thinks she's superior to everybody else. Right. And Data is like the, the exception to that. He's the one who thinks he's inferior, even yes. though we might think he's superior. But he's the kind of, he really is the kind of inverse Spock. Whereas That's Data, uh, Spock and Seven are just like up themselves, really. Yeah. They just like looking at everybody else going, oh, you don't know what we're because doing. Because Data had the humility. He was smarter, but thought he wasn't. Because Spock yeah. was smarter and he knew he was smarter. And then yeah. Seven thought she was smarter, but who knows? <laughs> I don't know, but uh, but yeah, I mean, the, those characters always work, you know, work so well for the for the show. Um, and then you know, look, the, the female cast has always complained, Gates and Marina, about how thin their roles were, and I, I don't think that's untrue. You know, I, I think they occasionally got a good episode, like Marina and Face of the Enemy. You know, Gates had a couple of good episodes, um, but you know, their characters weren't really that well developed. Well, what's interesting, I think, is that, that different actors would take very different attitude to these very thin uh, characterizations that they were handling. So some of them would be like, okay, great, so I can run with this. There isn't anything on the page, so I better bring it. Right, yeah. um, and, you know, someone like Andy Robinson absolutely is doing that. Garrick is, oh. you know, how much of Garrick is Andy? I mean, you know, a ton. Oh. Yeah. Um, or Bob Picardo on, on Voyager. That's like, Bob's just like, well, I'm just going to, I mean, I talked to David Livingston, he said they might as well just have called him Bob. Right. You know, it's, um, it's so it, it's that attitude of the actors that were saying, there are some actors who are like, okay, you give me the script, you give me what's on the page, I will deliver it. It's my job to do it as well as possible. So um, Robert Beltran, classic example of that. I'm just going to do the lines on the page and go home. Mm-hmm. And then there are other actors who are like, Oh, okay. They or Ethan said to me like they. I realised they cast you for you. Mm-hmm. So you come and you go right. Well, I have to take responsibility for this. I have to take command here and you know be be me and embody the character with me. Um, that's another of my favourite Nick Meyer lines. Was Nick said to me, um, an actor is someone who pretends they are someone else. A movie star is someone who pretends someone else is them. Right. Yeah. 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 That's a great, I mean, look, 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 Nick, Nick uh, is at no loss for witty Bon Mots. You know, I mean, that, <laughs> that guy is just a freaking quote machine, isn't he? <laughs> I mean, he, I remember he told me, he said, you know, Hollywood is the only place where you get to shake hands with your dreams. And I mean, he's just, uh, he's such an interesting guy. And Nick's a great example of like, you, Nick, Nick could be a terrible interview or a great interview, depending in, you know, because he, he likes to repeat the same stories. Yes, it was, Cons uh, Ricardo's chest, right? But it, I think if you you engage him and you, you ask him things he hasn't thought about before, like I, I'm sure you've been there with him, and obviously we've been there. You can he can be a great great interview, but it, you you have to challenge him and engage him on an intellectual level, or he just goes into you know autopilot. And then yeah, you have himself. to prove you're not a chump to Nick. 
Right. Yeah, there's definitely, you had to, you know, you need a few Shakespeare references and a bit of Conan Doyle. Um, <laughs> you know, you need to to imply that you've heard of uh, catharsis or mimesis or all those kind of things. And then it's okay with you, you know. Well, you but, told us Margaret Armin was your worst interview. Who was your best interview? Who, 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 who's the oh. person? I mean, besides this one. There are quite a few that stick out. Um, the one that had me rolling on the floor in laughter was um, Herb Wright. Mm. I mean, he was mad. <laughs> I mean, and I talked to Ron about that years later. And he said, oh, my God, you talked to her. Oh, I mean, they were just, they were left, like, utterly kind of bemused and bewildered by her. Um, you tell just, the audience who doesn't know who Herb Wright is. Herb Wright was a producer. He was a writer-producer on Next Generation first season. He got fired. He went off to do War of the Worlds. And then he came back a couple of seasons later. Um, but he's... He's a loony. He's a who's a lunatic. He was completely insane. Yeah. He was he he was gonna do quests. Sorry, this is getting very um very deep dive stuff. He was gonna do quests for ages. He was trying to right. develop them. But um yeah, Herb was just I mean Herb lost his job the second time because of Q Olympics. So he was gonna do so the, anybody who went to Paramount would know this that um there was this guy at Paramount called AC Lyles who was the, the suavest, best-dressed man you would ever meet. He was a man who made Cary Grant look scruffy. And he was, I don't know, he was just like this kind of guy who hung around in the commissary at Paramount. He'd been the former head of publicity, I think, of Paramount. Yeah. Well, he, produced he, the was, um, he was very good friends with D. Kelly, and he had an office uh, in the Hart Building. Yeah. So he, but he, he, uh, he was like one of the few Republicans in Hollywood. So he was like friends with D. Kelly, uh, friends with Jimmy Stewart, friends with Ronald Reagan. Mm -hmm. And when Reagan was uh, just immediately stopped being president, he would go and have dinner or lunch with AC in the Paramount Commissary. Mm. And they would invite all sorts of people to join them, including Arnold Schwarzenegger. So quite regularly, Herb is in there. And, they, and AC talked to everybody. I mean, AC talked to me. You know, he, he's like... And um, so Herb knows that Arnold Schwarzenegger is there in the commissary every other week or whatever while they're writing Star Trek. And he gets this idea that he can persuade Schwarzenegger to be in an episode of Next Gen. So, <laughs> I mean, where this idea came from, this is an example of how deluded Herb was. So he thinks AC is going to be able to talk Arnold Schwarzenegger into doing an episode of Next Gen. And they're going to do this story where Q, two Qs decide to pit uh, their champions against one another in a story called Q Olympic. And our Q, the Delancey Q, is going to pick um, Patrick Stewart and Captain Picard, and then the other Q is going to pick Arnold Schwarzenegger. And they're going to have all these kind of bizarre kind of uh, sci-fi sports, including wow. surfing, cosmic surfing, like the Silver Surfer. Uh, <laughs> and Herb genuinely thought this was going to happen, and then he lost his wow. job. For some reason, it's the shuttlecraft now. It's just gonna be. <laughs> <laughs> oh my wow. god, that is just crazy. That I hadn't heard amazing. that story. That's what I love. No, I had that story about Q Olympics. The script's kicking around. I actually wrote the script. I think the, the script is kicking around. 
Um, but yeah, you can imagine like Ron and uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think Ron and Brandon would have been there. And they're like, this man's mad. What is he talking about? <laughs> he was, he was mad as a hatter. Mad or genius. <laughs> well, he, he also, also invented was... the Ferengi. So this is Herb's other yeah. great claim to fame is inventing the Ferengi, who were originally, and I told Ira this, it's like, it's that basically the original concept for the Ferengi was like they were the Vorta. So they were like, they were meant to be, he pitched it to Gene as they're like the Hollywood agents. Right. The guys yeah. who smile and smile and then stab you in the back. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. The sneaky guys. Um, and that's why Gene said they would all have enormous cod pieces because they would all have it going on with the ladies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that was what <laughs> Gene's contribution was to the Frankie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very strange. <laughs> <laughs> then you've got Andy Prober having to draw little concepts of these Ferengi with their massive cut pieces. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so let, let's talk about, because obviously, you know, with the books, you're doing the books, and so the journalism continues, but uh, as head of Hero Collector, um, yeah, you are yes. doing this really remarkable line of um, Star Trek licensed ships. You broke your little ships, and... Yeah. Um, and of course, it was so successful that now you're doing the larger versions of the ships. Tell us how this all came about, and you know, kind of how you decide what ships you're going to do replicas of, and now you're <laughs> now we decide recording what's left. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so the ships came about again. We there's a long history of the way we sell stuff outside the U.S. Doing figurine collections. They've been very successful. Lord of the Rings figurines and um, Marvel and DC figurines. So we had a go at doing Star Trek figurines. This is like 10, 12 years ago. And I didn't do a very good job of it, to be honest. They were, you know, they're quite difficult to do Star Trek characters because they're all wearing pajamas and they don't have kind of excessive muscles like superheroes. Um, and there aren't lots of agents. And we, did a, we do a Doctor Who figurine collection, which is great. Her, her right was right. They should have done Q Olympics. Then you could have done an action <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, we would never have been able to get the rights to do Arnie because we wouldn't have been able to afford it. Because yeah. he would have had the rights. So we did. We tried to do these figurines. And we, it was like, everyone was like, oh, he should be sitting in his chair. It's like a figurine sitting in a chair is like the kiss of death. Yeah. Um, but as we were doing it, we realized that what we should probably be doing is the ships. This is what yeah. people were more interested in. And then because I knew all the VFX guys, I was like, yeah, and we won't be able to get it wrong because I'll get the VFX models and we'll just replicate them exactly. There will be no room for interpretation. I mean, you when you do figurines of people, you learn a lot. I tell you, people's faces are not symmetrical, um, and so much of it's in like the body language rather than the actual likeness. So there's there's a lot, a lot of complication before you even get to the actors when you're doing figurines. Um, so we eventually it took a long time. The company I was working for got bought, and all sorts of things slowed down and everything. Um, but then we originally did it. And I think originally we thought there would be like 50 or 60 because that's the way our business model works. Right. Um, and the great thing about that is it meant that we could do a sort of deeper dive than anybody else. Because up to that point, I think, or even now, the most anybody else has done is maybe 12, 15 right. chips. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, um, nobody, so we was were, doing, nobody was doing replicas of the Kazon ship. Until you came no, along. Actually, well, they do. There is a Galoob model of the oh, case sure. ship. But, but I, you know what? They weren't doing, no one was doing replicas of the Akira. Right. Um, yeah. Which had never been done before. 
um, and certainly not the steamrunner or you know or like the ships that were wrecked at Wolf Three Five Nine or. But even yeah, the Botany Bay, like you did the Botany Bay. Yeah. And uh, but my favorite is the Agro ship from uh, More Troubles, More Tribbles. Yeah. You, yeah. I mean, yeah. That, it was great to be able to do those things. Um, and then obviously, you know, it, it turned out to be our way into the U.S. as well, which had never really been a big thing for us before that collection. Um, and obviously, seven, eight. Well, in my case, nine or ten years later. Uh, we're still going. Um, I mean, it doesn't hurt that there's new Star Trek to do. Um, Does it? <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> no, I, it's a whole new line of, of ships that you can do, yeah. which is, and I mean, you know, and I just love that the discovery is based on the original Ralph McQuarrie, you know, designs for Ken Adams. Ken Adams. The Ken Adams. Sorry, I stand corrected. Absolutely. The Ken Adams designs for Planet Titans, which is just so cool. You know, um, because we all love Ken Adam. I mean, Jesus, because we're all Bond fans yeah. here. Um, but yeah, it's, it's so it's so cool. And then you know, it must have been nice for you to suddenly have these new shows because, of course, you run out of ships to do. You know, even at you know at that point. So uh, now it gives you a whole bunch of new ships to to to, to, to yeah. add to the and line. now there are so many shows that there's going to be at least one new ship a month without any trouble. Um, by the looks of it, as long as COVID kind of eases up. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, and, but I mean, we're still going, you know, I mean, one of the great pleasures has been discovering there are enough people who want to buy these things to make it viable. So yeah. being able to do like some of the concept ships has been like a real pleasure for me. I love all that stuff. I, you know, I love all that kind of uh, route not taken, alternative yeah. world stuff. So like doing Matt's original design for the shuttle, as an example, or the, there's like the, the whole, and the stories behind them. I mean, you know, the extraordinary stories behind these things. Like there's this whole kind of War of the Worlds TV series that was going to be made in the 70s. Right. Oh. That has the shuttle that ended up, that would have been in phase two. Right. Orig Matt had originally designed it for that. Mm -hmm. um, well, Darren knows because he built the model for us. Um, <laughs> but, you know, all those kind of things, or, you know, you get into, We've been over a year now. We've been working with Andy Probert on his vertical Romulan and Warbird. Mm. He's still quite happy with it. Um, <laughs> yeah, people, uh, what people who are, who who aren't subscribers to the collection may not realize is that with each ship, there's a, a mini magazine that has yeah. uh, facts and photos and historical information. You know, in great detail, and preserved in perfect detail. Uh, in a lot of magazines. Um, so uh, that that comes along with the subscription series. And then, you know, I imagine you chose the size of these ships so you could have a certain price point for these ships, but then you started also doing a larger, uh, larger ships as well. How did, how did that come about? Yeah, so, I mean, you're absolutely right that we, we picked the ships to make it be like a particular price point. Um, so they were, I think at the time it was like $20, I think they're up to 25 now. Um, and then you just had to make them all roughly the same size or to achieve that. So one of the big things everyone complains about is stuff not being in scale. scale but right. if you did it in scale, it would be like, well, I can't charge the same for something that's a quarter of the size as something else. Yeah. And if you've got people on a subscription, they just want to pay the same amount of money every month. It's like too complicated to say, oh, this month it's $150. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, don't worry, it's in scale. <laughs> Next month we're doing the Vault City ship, so that's going to be a thousand dollars. Going to be delivered in a in a great big articulated truck. 
Um, so yeah, there was a feeling that, and um, we did some, because of the way the rights worked, we did the ships from the JJ movies as special issues. And they are all way bigger. They're all like stupid, yeah. big, like ridiculously big. So we'd done those anyway. And there was a feeling that there was an appetite for bigger versions of the, like, the real uh, capital for hero ships. Um, so we started doing those. Um, and they went down really well. That line's been, been really, really successful. Um, oh. I think we've got it planned out to 30 hmm. at the moment. Um, which is a real, which is really interesting because I kind of figured at the beginning it would be like, okay, the Enterprises, Voyager, the Defiant, you know, that's as far as we can be able to get with something like this because they're like, you know, they're like $75, which, you know, for where we were coming from seemed like a lot of money. I know, but I uh, just ordered the uh, Klingon Katinga from Star Trek The Motion Picture because I freaking love that ship. So, uh, and I was so glad to see that you're doing the bigger version of it. Yeah, and it turned out really nicely as well, that one. That's, uh, um, you know, that one worked out really well. Yeah, I mean, and, and, but what's been great about it is if, if there are enough people who want to buy the Katinga or who want to buy, I'm trying to think what the most obscure Starfleet ship we've done so far is. I mean, obviously the Akira went down well. Um, but if, you know, I just counted up for something else we're looking at for next year, there are 72 Starfleet ships that we've done from uh, the pre-Discovery era. Right, right. So you know, not including Discovery and Picard and Lower Decks. Um, there, are, there are 72 that we've managed to do, which is quite extraordinary. I didn't, you know, you, you realize some of those are deep dives. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so if people want them at that scale, then we could do all of them. I mean, it's just a question of whether enough people want to buy them, really. I want the Botany Bay. Botany Bay, that's what I want. Yeah, I, I kind of <laughs> think about doing that. Have you seen this? Like, there's the Botany Bay in the, uh, the original launch configuration. Yes that Greg, Greg Jane did. Yeah. So you, you see there's more of it and that there's right. a whole kind of a rocket booster bit that got lost. So I'd like to do it with that. Oh, okay. Um, so now, yeah. obviously the Star Trek was so successful that you've branched into other IP and it seems like uh, Galactic has done very well for you. Yeah, Galactic has been a real, uh, a real pleasure and it's gone down really well. Um, that's been really nice. We're doing, it's interesting, we, again, what there's an appetite for. So, you know, those of us on this side of the pond didn't get as much Galactica when we were growing up as you guys did. <laughs> um, didn't have quite the same kind of visceral impact. Connection, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because it didn't get like a regular slot on TV or something that we got like the TV movie version. So are you telling me I'm not going to get my light ship from War of the Gods as part of the <laughs> No, well, things made of light are always difficult. <laughs> but, I, but that's been really, what I was going to say is it's been really nice to discover that there's that kind of appetite for the classic stuff as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know because I thought the original Galactica and the original Viper and the Silent Raider terrific and you have the Land Ram coming out. I think it's, I, yeah. it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that's really frustrating is that we, we tried to do the Buck Rogers ship. Yeah. Um, which obviously are very closely related, but Universal, like, oh, we don't have the rights. We don't have rights to Buck Rogers. It's owned by somebody else. It's all too complicated. So oh, we can't do that. Right. Um, we do have, we do do alien ships. We did those limited edition. We're going to reissue those at a different scale now because the initial limited edition run sold out. 
Mm. Um, obviously, we're doing the Orville. Yep. Uh, um, so we've done the first couple of those, and then next year, when the series is back, we'll do a ton more. Uh, yeah, and the Orville, I just saw Doug Drexler just had a picture of the Orville on his Facebook page. It looks great. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's always nice when you see something that's been like, it, there's something about actually making something physical and having it on your desk that is like just kind of really satisfying. And I, what I really hope is that um, I'm still waiting. I keep being told that they're going to turn up in the show and then that storyline gets cut. So oh. like um, in Discovery Season 2, there was a whole storyline with um, Pike's sister and she was going to be flying our model of the NX-01 in her hand. Mm. And then they it, so it didn't happen. Um, in Picard, there was a whole thing. John Eves spray painted a load of our ships gold because they were going to be in Riker's, uh, Riker's office or whatever he had. Right, right. And that didn't happen. So I keep waiting. I keep like, oh, just, you know, it's going to happen. It's going to be on screen. It hasn't happened yet. <laughs> be patient. There are enough shows yeah. now. It'll happen on one of them. Yeah, it's bound to, I hope. I mean, we're, yeah. Well, averages. We turned up, we had a Cyberman figurine in the Big Bang Theory. Right. Oh, <laughs> so what's your dream, uh, what's your, 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 your dream IP? Do you have something that you want to Well, we pretty much have everything. I you can't, I was, there are things that we've signed that we can't, we haven't announced yet, so I can't spoil it or I'll be in trouble. Um, but the, the one thing that we can't get, so, okay, so we can't get Buck Rogers stuff because of the rights, mm. uh, and you, and Warner Brothers won't license Babylon 5. Right. They're just like, oh, it's, you know, it's not a live license. We're just not interested in doing anything with it. Um, so I kind of think, you know, you hope that that will change at some point. Um, I would think, I think the reason it's not a live license would be a reason to do it. Uh, yeah, well, they, you know, they have to pay lawyers to uh, find out who they have to pay money to and to resurrect stuff and that like, kind of thing. I still think for the for the Buck Rogers Starfighter, you should just release it as the Battlestar Galactica. Uh, no, nobody uh, at Universal will know. What? Nobody at Universal will know. They didn't even know they'd made yeah. a Buck Rogers TV series. So <laughs> I was like, yeah, you did. <laughs> because uh, the Starfighter is just the original design for the Viper. So you do it under the Battlestar Galactica and just call Ralph yeah. McCoy's original Viper. I try that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I would love to see you guys do a version of the Mothership from Close Encounters. It, it comes up. That's that to me is there's like a kind of because um, that's something that we've never had in any, you know, physical form ever. And it's still, you know, it's still one of uh, Columbia's biggest sell sellers in uh, uh, Blu-ray. I want Richard uh, yeah. Dreyfuss's uh, Bell uh, telephone truck. I <laughs> <laughs> did do one of those. Yeah, they, you had to find one that already exists. Uh, <laughs> it's very, very expensive. You have to justify it. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, we talk about the possibility of, of stuff like those kind of one-offs. Yeah. Um, and if it's something like, I don't know, like um, the black hole or... I was just going to say that. I was going <laughs> to scale. Uh, yeah, I mean... Oh, to scale. Okay. <laughs> that might be um, Or a firefly or yeah. something like that. Those kind of things, I, I have no trouble believing 
that right. the same people who are already buying stuff from us will buy. Right. But if it becomes, like you say, the mothership from Close Encounters, you can, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. But you um, believe they'll buy Buck Roger. I mean, uh, uh, Black Hole. Although, I, yeah, I maybe. Brian Furlick is telling me, when are you going to do it? When are you going to do it? Right. And this is my, my kind of like, well, if Brian will buy it, and then I think, no, Brian buys everything. Um, <laughs> Brian can afford to buy everything. I know, Brian, I'm waiting to see if Brian buys the actual Nostromo. This week, isn't it? Two weeks. Two weeks. Yeah. Brian's like, mm, did you see that? What's that? And I was like, yeah, you buy it. <laughs> what is money for if not to be spent on things like that? So I'm um, definitely Brian. Take some of those, those that, 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 those Hannibal. Take some of that discovery residuals that you're getting and use that to buy the Nostromo. <laughs> oh my goodness. I mean, you know, it's, 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 he should do it. He should do it because I'll go over to the house and uh, I want to see it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, but so what else? I mean, we do, I mean, licenses that we've got. So we've got, obviously, we've got Star Trek. Um, obviously, got the Orville. Obviously, got Alien. Obviously, got Battlestar Galactica, you know, Bond. Uh, we do the big cars as well. So we've got the DeLorean, the Back to the Future DeLorean. That's like a real pleasure. Um, and that is like bizarre. You, I find a guy who's got the car, and I go up there, and it turns out to be Terry Metalis, who used to be Brandon's yeah. assistant, yeah, yeah. and now runs the car. Yeah. Yeah. What a small world is that? It's hilarious. Um, we're just doing the the Ghostbusters, uh, the Ecto one. Mm -hmm. That's that's like that's insanely big. That thing. That's nearly three feet long. Okay, what about you go to Axis Space Station for Ghostbusters? <laughs> just we, we tested, and it did not work. To my great disappointment, we tested the Lotus. Uh, ah. We were going to do it so you you could convert it, so you can either have it in underwater mode or real car mode. And then you realize when you're watching the film, hang on, but there's no way, no there way. is no way that you can convert <laughs> from one to the other. It's well, you can if you own the Corgi toy from 40 years ago. I used to do. <laughs> yeah, where do the, where do those big fans coming out the back come from? Where do they go when they're inside? <laughs> I know, I know. And also, when you go through that, you this is one of the things. So you're going through things like frame by frame, and you're like, going, hang on a minute, this is a different car. That's the What's real Q Olympics. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, then, you know, <laughs> hang on, this is four different things. You're, you're not just the head of hero collector. You're a hero to collectors everywhere for doing the <laughs> Lord's work with this stuff. And a, and a villain to many, many wives. Uh, <laughs> there's probably some coalition of angry wives against me somewhere. What, what, is the, what is Nicole Williamson's line, Excalibur? Um, a dream uh, to some, a nightmare to others. <laughs> there so there you go, Ben. Well, look, I'm so glad we finally got to, we've been talking about having you on the show for a while, but this was, this was great because we're, you know, three different time zones and we made it work. So uh, it was a great, you know, great episode. I enjoyed talking. It's to you. always a pleasure. It feels like there's a lot of stuff we can still talk about. Well, yeah. we'll have to have you back on the show. I'm here in Europe for another for a while. So well, well, yeah, no one's got anywhere at the moment, are they? Yeah. So, uh, but anyway, though, this was great, and uh, thank you uh, for, for for coming on board. Oh. And if people want to uh, subscribe or, or find out more about Eagle Moss, so, yeah, so all the stuff we do, shop.eaglemoss.com. Uh, so all the ships up there, all the books are up there. Um, you have to dig around a little bit for the, for the DeLorean or the Ecto. They're in a different place. But if you, you know, Google Eagle Moss and any of those words, you're likely to find something. And yeah, next, um, we'll have some announcements coming out in the next few weeks, actually. 
great. Right. So, uh, right. some news for people who watch TV, that kind of Lovely. thing. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Well, we'll be, Thanks uh, so much, Ben. Uh, thank you, Ben. Well, thank you we'll talk to you soon. Yeah, have a good day. Bye. You too. Hey, so done. I thought that. <laughs> I hey, Mark. Yes, <laughs> yeah. that was a lot. That was a lot of fun talking to Ben. That was fun talking to Ben. I, I didn't expect to get into a whole conversation about the merits of Star Trek season three because I want to do a whole episode about that. It's funny. It's funny. But uh, I mean, you know, look, I, 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 don't, I don't like being put in the position of defending season three of Star Trek, but I don't like uh, to lose. I, I don't <laughs> like to lose. That's right. And I, I just, I, you know, uh, I don't. know. It's what you said. I'll take bad TOS. Over yeah. a lot of over other any of the bad ones from the other. <laughs> any so of them. you know, I, I have to I have to stand by it. So, uh, but uh, but Ben Ben's great. You know, um, it's funny because uh, I don't see him that often, but more often than not, uh, we get together at like Comic Con or New York Comic Con, and he used to come to LA occasionally. We get together, um, but obviously that's not happening recently. Not only because there's a raging pandemic, but also I'm not in uh, Los Angeles right now. But, uh, but um, uh, I'm really glad that we got to talk to him on the show. I, I, it's actually a lot more interesting than I thought. The Q Olympics is the, such a great <laughs> story. Um, and I just love that after all these years, there's still new stories to mine and discuss about Star Trek. There's um, always new stories to tell, Mark. Always new stories. There are, there, indeed <laughs> there are, Gene. I'm, I'm so glad you uh, pointed that out. The galaxy and, is vast. And I, you know, look, I, it's like I said, um, I think that, you know, one of the great joys of the show is finding these guests that may be uh, more obscure, or esoteric, um, that you wouldn't hear, uh, you know, elsewhere. And I think Ben's a great example of that, because, of course, the fact that he's had access and been covering Star Trek now for, you know, I would say, you know, obviously for a good 30 years, uh, yeah. he has great stories. And uh, that was abundantly clear. So uh, I, I think that about wraps it up. When you say that, Darren, I, I would agree. I, yeah. I concur. Uh, does the first officer concur? Yes. Destruct <laughs> zero, zero, zero. Someone argues this podcast is destructive right now. Um, but I, I, I want to remind the listeners that they can um, tweet us questions or um, uh, share their thoughts about the podcast on Twitter at Inglorious Trek or Instagram at Inglorious Trexperts. And of course, on Facebook, on the Inglorious Trexperts page. Um, if you're a fan of the podcast, you can now watch us on our video podcast editions available on the Electric Now app. So download the Electric Now app at your favorite app store, and you can stream episodes of Inglorious Trexperts, Best Movies Never Made, The Four Story Movie, uh, Two on Who, and our other popular Electric Surge podcast on the Electric Now app. And of course, we want to send a special thanks to our sound mixer, Bill Ritter, who keeps us sounding relatively good despite the Zoom audio, the deficiencies of Zoom audio. But I still think the show sounds pretty good. Um, and it's all because of Bill Ritter. So thank you, Bill. Of course, our producer, Natalie Miscali, and our production coordinator, Peter Holmstrom. So uh, uh, thank you to all of them. And until next week, we want to wish you all live long and prosper. And of course, Keep on trekking, and gloriously, of course. Engage.
This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.